Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 18. For ye have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and voice, whose words made the hearers vague, and no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to, the, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the heaven, I mean the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And Father, we are coming to you as our God, and we, we recognize that you are a consuming fire. We recognize, God, that you are holy, that you are good. We recognize, God, that you are love. We recognize, God, that you are all who you said you are, all who you've revealed yourself to be, both in your written word and the incarnate word, Jesus. We come to you, Lord, believing that you are who you said you are, and that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. So Father, help us by your Holy Spirit to seek you. Lord, we really want to be those that worship you in a way that's pleasing to you. Do this, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says? Now the epistle of Hebrews, this letter to Hebrews, was written to people at a real spiritual crossroads. The Hebrews were Jewish people, Hebrews. That's their background. But they were believers in Jesus. And because they were believers in Jesus, they were experiencing some pretty serious persecution. Specifically, they're being persecuted by other Hebrews. People who didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah, was God's chosen king. And the pressure had gotten so intense, they're beginning to think, is it worth it? Is believing in Jesus worth it? Is following Jesus worth it? worth it. And the whole epistle's about that. The whole letter's about that. In fact, if you were to give a theme to the, the, the epistle of Hebrews, it would be Jesus is better. He's better than everything that we think we want or have had in whatever religious life we've had before we came to know Jesus. But it doesn't take away the fact that it's still a lot of pressure. It's still a difficulty that they're going through. And it doesn't take away the fact that, that, that they are experiencing something. They're tempted to do something that if we are honest with ourselves, we would probably be tempted to do. 
if we were in severe persecution, if religious people, if put into a, a, a 21st century Western context, if other Christians were saying to us, other people who name the name of Jesus were saying to us, you're not really believers, you're not really followers, and they persecuted us, we might think maybe we've got it wrong. It's a difficult place. It is a spiritual crossroads. They are literally standing on the cliff of apostasy and wondering if they should jump. It's a serious place for them to be. And throughout the whole letter, over and over again, the author of Hebrews, who we don't know for sure who wrote Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews is is not just warning them, but encouraging them that Jesus is indeed better. And so in this section, we saw that phrase at the very end, verse 28, I think it was, that phrase of let's worship God acceptably. Let's, Let's bring an acceptable worship to God. What is that? What does it mean? And and I think it's important for us to recognize this, okay? That that what's happening here is the writer is going to frame what it means to bring acceptable worship to God. He's going to frame it with this metaphor of two mountains. There should be a graphic that comes up. Is it up there? I know it's stunningly good. And it's important that we see this, though, because it can get confusing if we don't see this is what he's doing. He's putting up two mountains as a metaphor. One is Mount Sinai. We'll talk about that in the first few verses. The next one is Mount Zion. And we'll talk about that in the next few verses. And it's important for us to recognize that when he talks about Mount Mount Sinai, the things sound so heavy, so difficult, we can think, ooh, this must be a comparison to this is bad, Mount Sinai, and then Mount Zion, this is good. But actually what he's doing is he's saying, hey, this was good, Mount Sinai, but this is better, Mount Zion. So that we would recognize what he's actually doing. So what I want to do is is I want you guys to, to recognize that what the writer's concerned with and what I believe the Holy Spirit's concerned with for us today is not so much how we worship, but who we worship. Because who we worship will determine how we worship. So let's talk about four ways that God calls us to worship him acceptably. First one, in verses 18 and 21, we see, we're gonna see this, we should worship in a recognition of God's holiness. Let's look at verse 18 again. The writer talks about this place that cannot be touched. The word for touch there is the idea of like groping as a blind person. Like you can't see with your eyes and so you're trying to get a sense of what's around you. He says, we don't, we don't come to a mountain like that. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. The sound of a trumpet. A voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages will be spoken. Sounds absolutely terrifying and it was. If you were with us a couple years ago in 2022, we went through the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And we saw in Exodus 19 and 20 the very scene that the writer is referring to here. It's a scene where Moses is going to receive the Ten Commandments, the very basis, the foundation of his covenant with his people. And it's interesting because when he calls Moses to come up the mountain, before he calls Moses to his purposes, he makes it clear to Moses, Moses, listen, I am the one who's redeemed my people. I love my people. I've redeemed my people. I want a relationship with my people. Therefore, I want you to come up and receive this covenant. He makes it clear that he wants a relationship with them. But he also makes it clear, listen, 
that they needed to recognize this relationship can happen without holiness. Interesting, let me just read to you a couple of verses from Exodus chapter 20. It says this, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood afar off and they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Now, what God was doing by, by sort of bringing the Ten Commandments, by coming down to Israel, rather than saying, you guys all come up to me, he comes down to them, and there's this mediator, this go-between. Moses is between the people and between Israel. What he's trying to show them, and by, by the, the directions he gives them about this mountain experience, he's trying to show them, listen, you can't come to me unless there is a mediator. I am so terrifyingly good that if you were to come into my prison, she would just literally die like that. He wants them to recognize, I want a relationship with you, but my perfection and your sin are a problem. There has to be a mediator. And the fact that they're saying, listen, when they say to Moses, the people say, you speak to us, well, listen, don't let God speak to us. There is a, a fear that is building in them, and this isn't a bad thing by itself. There, there is something about the goodness of God that should be terrifying to us. I'm not going to have it on the screen right now, but you guys remember the scene in the Gospels when Peter uh, is, is been fishing all night and he's caught nothing, and Jesus is preaching as Peter's kind of mending his nets, and, and then Jesus says to Peter, uh, Peter, why don't you go ahead and cast your nets on the right side of the boat? And he's like, Lord... I've been fishing all night and caught nothing. But yeah, exactly. You're not a fisherman. Come on, Lord. You're good at preaching, but fishing? I don't think so. And Peter, Peter says, but nonetheless, at your words, and he does it. He chucks out the net, catches a massive amount of fish. His friends have to help him pull into the boat. And what does Peter do? When Peter sees the goodness of God through Jesus, what does Peter do? He says, get away from him, a sinful man. There's something about the very goodness of God. If we see God's goodness as he reveals it in his scripture, there's something about the goodness of God that actually repels us because it exposes us. It, it shows us that we fall short. In fact, this is such a big deal that the author of Hebrews here in verses 20 and 21 shows that even Moses wasn't good enough to not be afraid. It says that they could not endure the order that was given. He's quoting uh, chapter 19, verse 13 of Exodus. He says, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And the idea there is, is no one could touch the mountain. If, if, if someone went up the mountain that only Moses was allowed to be up there, they would be killed. God would say, that's it. They're not respecting my holiness. And even if a, an animal comes up, and if it doesn't die, you kill it. So that, you, that the picture's there, that you cannot approach me without dealing with my holiness. Now, it's interesting because when the, the, the author quotes Moses here in verse 21, and Moses says, I tremble with fear, that, that is actually not from Exodus 19 and 20. It's actually from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19. Listen to this. He says, for I was afraid, this is Moses speaking to God's people, to Israelites. He says, for I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was all ready to destroy you, but the Lord listened to me that time also. Now, the context of Deuteronomy 9 is when 
Moses is basically, Deuteronomy is all about a second giving the law. That's what the, the name means. Deuteronomy means like a second law. It's the second time God's, he, Moses is reiterating the covenant to God's people before they go into the promised land, right? He's kind of preaching through the law to them. And so he's reiterating to them the, the, the story. It's actually in Exodus 32. Remember when Moses goes up to get the mountains, uh, goes, goes up to get the Ten Commandments, sorry, and, and while he's up there for 40 days, 40 nights, what happens? The Israelites are down, down below, and they decide, we actually don't know where Moses is, therefore we don't know where God is. So Aaron, Moses' brother, why don't you make us a golden calf that we can worship? And they make this golden calf, and they say, here's Yahweh who redeems you. Now, now, now here's the thing. When Moses reiterates the story, he says, I was afraid of the anger and displeasure of God towards you. And, and when Moses is saying this, the idea he's trying to say here is, listen, I wasn't sure that God was going to not do this, even though I know God called me to be a mediator. So, so Moses knew God is so good, I don't know if I'm enough to be the go-between. I don't think I'm good enough to be the go-between. Now, God was merciful, but Moses was wondering, man, should I do this? Here's the thing that we need to recognize, okay? The author says clearly, you have not come to this mountain. That this is not the place that we go up to worship. We don't go up to worship based on law, based on what God has done or, God, or we have done for God or what we're trying to do for God or, or, or even our sense of I have to obey by doing this. That is not the mountain we go up to worship, but... We need to humbly bow to it. We need to, we need to recognize, I can't go up that mountain. I'd die if I go up that mountain. No worship's going to take place because I'll be dead. I cannot go up that mountain, but I do need to humbly walk past it and bow and say, Lord, you are holy. You were right to do this. If, it, it, it's until we recognize God's terrifying goodness, if we don't recognize God's perfection, if we don't recognize that God is the giver of everything that's good, everything that you would value in your life is a gift from God. And you might be thinking, oh, I can think of some things that God would, would, didn't give me because they're bad things. But actually, your motive for wanting them is actually a shadow, a corrupted shadow of the good that God wants for you. Every good gift and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. That's what the scripture says in the book of James. And until you see the goodness of God and how often we thumb our nose and ignore the goodness of God, until you see that, you're not ready to worship. Because until you see that, you don't realize what God needs to do to make you ready for worship. We don't go up this mountain, but we do, we must bow before it if we're going to worship God acceptably. So we don't go up this mountain, he says, but in verse 22 he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion was the, the, the mountain that actually Jerusalem, is the mountain that actually Jerusalem is built on. But in this context, he's not talking about the physical city of Jerusalem. He's, he's, again, he's using a metaphor, Mount Sinai being a metaphor of Old Testament, Mount Zion being a metaphor for New Testament. That's what he's doing. In fact, if you look at the description here, in verse 22, notice what he says, the first part. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, he says, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering. What's he describing there? He's describing heaven. He's, he's, he's describing not a physical place, but a heavenly reality. 
In all these verses that we're going to look at next, in verses 22 to 24, all these things speak of the fact that if we're going to worship God acceptably, we have to do so as recipients of God's grace. And here's the first thing we need to recognize about God's grace. Listen, God's grace is a grace that positions us in his presence. Positions us. As in like, you get to stay there. Listen. Check this out. Ephesians chapter 2 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you reckon all the, all, all the past tense words there? Loved. It's already done. It's already there, Right? Raised up, already done, already there. Seated, already done, already there. There's a permanence to our position. Listen, let me ask you a really simple question. If Jesus rose from the dead, can he die again? Absolutely not. If he's ascended to the right hand of the Father and sits at the right hand of the Father, that position, can he ever lose that position? Absolutely not. You know what that means? We, in Christ, have a permanent position. Think about that. Sometimes we talk about worship, and, and, and what we really mean is kind of like our experience of singing songs to God. And I'm not saying our experience doesn't matter. I'm not saying it doesn't have any measure. It does. And, and, and I'll just say for the record, my experience today was really good. <laughs> I really felt like Sammy did a great job leading us today. I was really blessed. But the thing is, worship is not about my experience or your experience. Worship in song or in service is about the Lord's experience. It's about what he experiences from us. It's about us giving him his due. And and here's 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 the great thing to understand. Listen. We don't have to wait till we feel like we've experienced the presence of God. We don't have to wait for that. You know why? You have a position by grace in the very presence of God. I mean, that's amazing. This is what Christ earns for you. This is why the Bible says, listen, Hebrews 4, this is chapter 4, a few verses for chapters before. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want you to notice it says let us because I'm going to talk about that towards the end. But I also want you to notice, listen, that what, what's God's throne? It's the throne of grace. Wait a second. Did we just see that God is a holy God? And he says to his people, do not come up this mountain to me. Yes, you cannot go up that mountain without a mediator. And that mediator needs much much better than Moses. And guess what? Good news, you have a mediator much better than Moses. His name is Jesus. And he doesn't just go up for you. He goes up with you. You go up in him. So it's a grace that positions us in his presence. Verse 23, it's grace that gives us Christ's inheritance. Look at the first part of verse 23. He says, and to, here's where we go to, here's the mountain we go up to, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now the the, the firstborn, the firstborn son, culturally, first century, the firstborn son, got a double portion of the inheritance. Firstborn is a title that God gives to Israel as a nation, primarily, firstly, But then ultimately, that title goes to Jesus. He's the firstborn over all creation. 
He's the preeminent one. All inheritance really is his. But what's amazing is that he shares his inheritance with us. And this is kind of the idea the author of Hebrews is getting at. Listen, you come to a place, listen, you have a grace given to you in Jesus that gifts you Christ's inheritance. I have a, a, a fantasy. You might as well have a, one of these fantasies like I have. I have this fantasy that there's a, a, an uncle I don't know that's incredibly wealthy and has no children. You guys ever had one of those fantasies? You know what I'm talking about? And that, you know, he's, 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 he knows Jesus. I don't want him to die without knowing Jesus. He knows Jesus, and he's just about to go to heaven, and he's going to leave everything to me. That's a little fantasy I've had. Because, you know, as much as I love my mom and dad, they didn't, you know, they divorced when I was quite young. My dad left nothing because he had nothing. And my mom probably won't have anything left by the time she goes. If you have Jesus, John. I know, I know. Just, I mean, let me use my analogy. <laughs> the point is this. The point is this, okay? Jesus shares his inheritance with us. What does Jesus inherit? Everything. 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 So we lack nothing. We come before the Lord. Listen, we walk up that mountain as recipients of his grace, which means, yes, we're positioned in his presence, but also we expect an inheritance. This is not, don't worry, I'm not setting anything up for name and claim. I don't believe in that rubbish. What I'm trying to say is this. We can know that the Father loves us as he loves the Son. It's interesting because this isn't just, there are some that would say, that think that this verse is talking about the fact that it's the, those who are of believing Israel, that he's talking about those who are believing Israel who have died, they're already in heaven. They're definitely included in that lot. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. Okay? But also what's happening here is, is basically the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, this is all those who are connected through Jesus. And we know this because when it comes to inheritance, listen, when it comes to, to receiving this, this is what Jesus, we saw this a little bit last week, didn't we, when, when Johnny was talking to us about Saul of Tarsus and his conversion. This is what Jesus told Saul he's going to preach. This is Saul telling his own testimony in Acts chapter 26. Listen, Jesus, the, the glorified Jesus says to Saul, I am sending you to open the Gentiles' eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness and a place among those who are being sanctified by faith in me. They get to inherit it too. This is why the, the Bible uses language like those who continue in unrepentant sin and it lists all those different sins, what they are, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because we don't inherit because we've been repentant. We inherit it because of what Christ has done and because we believe that we repent. Because we believe that we turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus. So it's grace that positions us in his presence, grace that gives us Christ's inheritance, but also, listen, grace by which God declares people innocent. Look at the second part of verse 23. He says, you've come to God, the judge of all. And I love that the author includes this next bit right next to it. And to spirits of the righteous made perfect. (laughs) Who's our judge? God is. And if we're honest about our lives, our attitude, our actions, 
if we are honest about what actually goes on in our hearts, knowing that God judges, if we were judged only by our works, we would all be lost. But here's the radical thing. He says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now this is definitely, I think, a reference to those who have died in Christ and are now there. So that when we come together to worship, to seek God in our gatherings, that in heaven they're also gathering. I don't know if they, they really know who we are. The scripture doesn't kind of indicate whether that's the case. But we are actually entering the same activity that they're entering into. An enjoyment of God. And here's what's amazing. The scripture says, teaches that God declares us in, uh, innocent when we put our faith in Jesus. He doesn't just say, you're forgiven, try not to mess up anymore. He says, I've now rendered you not guilty. I've given you this. And those who he said, you're not guilty, he's promised to perfect. Because we're far from perfect, and we've got to be perfect to be in the presence of a perfect God. We're far from perfect, but we have this position in Christ, we have this innocence in Christ, we have this justification, not guilty, in Christ. And guess what? One day we will be perfect as Christ. Listen, I'm reading Romans chapter 4 from the Living Translation. I love the way it translates this. It's kind of a paraphrase, but it's still really good. It says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they've earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. I know sometimes we come to a gathering, house group, church, meeting a friend for coffee, we gather together with other believers, knowing that we need to be with other believers, and we feel like we are frauds. If people really knew what was going on in my heart, they wouldn't want to fellowship with me. We feel like frauds. But what that is, is us going up the wrong mountain. It's us thinking that we, we go to fellowship on this mountain that we know, actually, if we go up there, we're dead. If we're exposed, we're dead. And that's not the mountain we're called to go up and worship. We're called to go up the mountain of grace. We're, we're called to go up as recipients of God's grace. God is gracious. He's proven his grace in Christ. And it's not just a grace by which he declares his innocent. Listen, it's a grace that continually speaks mercy and forgiveness. Look at verse 24. And to Jesus, we come up to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, way better than Moses. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You guys remember who Abel is? Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4, right? What happens? They each bring, a, they each bring their offering to God, in a sense, their sacrifice to God. God accepts Abel's, rejects Cain's. Cain's mad, but if you're mad at God, you can't really hurt God, so what do you do? You hurt one of his image bearers. And so Cain murders Abel. And so Abel, his, 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 his body lays in the ground, and we read in Genesis 4 the sense of where the blood of Abel is speaking to God. And not the sense, not some like, weird, mystical way, but there's a reality, that there's a, a message communicated by the death of Abel that says, God, will you avenge me? Will you avenge me? It's the, it's the message that is, 
is repeated throughout the Psalms. How long, O Lord? It's the message that we see in the book of Revelation from the saints that are suffering there. How long, O Lord? When, Lord, will you stop all this injustice? How long, O Lord? It speaks of that. That's not bad. That's not bad. We need to learn to lament the sins done against us and say, how long, O Lord? But Jesus' blood speaks of something better. Not how long, O Lord, but Father, have mercy. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what the blood of Christ speaks. That's what he literally spoke on the cross. Mercy, enduring mercy, forgiveness, grace. And it continually speaks. When the Bible speaks of Jesus forever making intercession for us, he's praying for us. When Jesus is praying, he's not just praying with his words, he's praying with his wounds. What he's done is a testimony in heaven of our position, of our, I want to say right to be there, but it's only a right we have in Christ. That's what it testifies of. He, he intercedes for us. We can know that there's mercy and forgiveness. We can know, as we mentioned earlier, that throne of grace is always open to us. If you are in a place, in a season, where you're finding worship, and I don't just mean worship in song, I mean worship in song, worship in service, being with God's people, or even trying to sort of be alone with God yourself, I think, the priority should be being with God's people. But the point is, if you're experiencing a, a sense of just dissatisfaction, or like the doors of heaven are brass and they're closed, or like you, you're really not wanted, you're an illegitimate child, if you're feeling those kinds of things, it could very much well be that you're going up the wrong mountain. And you're not recognizing that you could never go up that mountain because if you try to go up that mountain, you're not recognizing the holiness of God. And the only mountain that you're welcomed at is the mountain that Jesus climbed for you. So we worship. Acceptable worship is in recognition of God's holiness. It's as recipients of God's grace. Next year, you're going to go faster. It's in submission to God's word. Look at verse 25. The author says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for, they did not, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him uh, who warns from heaven. Now, now, what's he talking about here? Basically, the author is warning, saying, look, here's God's warning against those who refuse to listen to him. What you have here, in these, again, this metaphor of these two mountains is you have Israel not willing to listen to God through Moses. They said, you speak to us, Moses, but then Moses spoke to them, and they still didn't do what they were supposed to do. They refused to hear God's voice through Moses. And now he's saying, look, our fate is going to be worse if we refuse to listen to God through Jesus. There's a higher level of accountability when we know the gospel. Which is why it's a serious thing to come and hear the Bible taught to you. To hear this, the, the scripture taught to you week after week after week and not actually do something with it. There's a serious danger in that. 
And it's interesting because Jesus had this phrase, didn't he, right? The first time we read it is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 15. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to what I say, Jesus says. And it wasn't just Matthew 11. Matthew 13, verse 9, same thing. Matthew 13, 43, same thing. Mark 4, 9, same thing. Mark 4, 23, same thing. Mark 7, 7, 16, same thing. Luke 14, 35, same thing. Revelation 2, 7, 2, 11, 2, 17, 2, 29. Revelation 3, 6, 3, 13, 3, 22, and 13, 9, also the same basic thing. He who has ears to hear, listen! Because he's speaking truth that sets you free. We need to submit, be in submission to God's word. We're not worshiping acceptably if we hear God's word, but don't do it. We don't respond in faith. We don't say, God, you are worthy to be trusted. I know that I can't go to you because you're so holy, but I believe that in Christ I have grace that makes me holy, so I want to come to you, and I want to hear what you say, and I want to do it. Because I have a position with you. I have a relationship with you that's permanent in Christ. Therefore, from there, I want to obey. I want to learn to obey. Then we look at verse 26 because we see submission to God's word means we listen to that warning against not listening to him, but also we recognize God's promise to shake up this corrupt world. In verse 26, it says, at that time, his voice shook. He's speaking of this say, At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, he's saying, listen, when God speaks, things happen. It's not like us, when we say something to somebody, if we exhort somebody, if we encourage somebody, if we give someone advice, it only has an effect if they take that advice. When God speaks, it always has an effect. That effect may be to harden your heart because of your own disobedience. That effect may be to put you in a place where you're humbled, but it has an effect every time. The scripture is really clear. The book of Genesis, how does God create the world? The Bible says, does the Bible say, and God took tools out of his shed and began to... God said, light, and there was light. He spoke all of creation into existence. God speaks, and what didn't exist comes into existence. But also we see this, this same, kind of, same kind of characteristics listed about how God just speaks in general. Like if you read in the Psalms, you'll hear about the, the power of God's voice. God speaks, and the shaders split into pieces, and you know, the, the deer gives birth, and just God speaks and new life comes. God speaks, and strength is broken down. God speaks, and things happen. Now, the, the, this thing that he quotes, this phrase that he quotes, yet what's more, I will not only shake the earth, but also the heavens. He's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Haggai. And it's good to hear this in its context. Listen to this. Haggai chapter 2 says, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord. 
Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. I want you to think about this, okay? What Haggai is prophesying, what he's saying in the name of God, what God's having Haggai say to the people of that time is, listen, the temple's being rebuilt. They've come back from captivity in Babylon. They're rebuilding the temple. The temple's being rebuilt, and they're all going, this isn't that great. And he's saying, no, you don't get it. This is glorious. I'm shaking things up, not just for you, but for the nations that surround you. There's something glorious that's happening. Now, when that shakeup happens around the nations, in fact, if you, you read the, the whole context, part of, that, part of the result is the nations start giving money to Israel so they can rebuild the temple. But when God starts shaking up the nations, it's to, it's to, to glorify his name through other people that aren't believers. It's, it's to make himself known to other nations, not just to his people. To make himself known through his interactions with his people. This is why this is important. Because God's going to shake up this corrupted world, and how he's going to shake up this corrupted world is by the good that he does in us. That doesn't mean that everything that's going to happen to us is going to be glorious. I mean, some of the stuff we go through as Christians is worse than if we weren't Christians. But what it means is this. Listen, what it means is God says, I'm going to do something here. It's going to be pretty radical. Now, what was prophesied in Haggai had an immediate fulfillment in Haggai, but obviously the author of Hebrews is saying it has an ultimate fulfillment. And the ultimate fulfillment would have to do when Jesus comes back. Listen to this. 2 Peter chapter 3, talking about when Jesus comes back and brings that final judgment. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Yeah. This, is, this is kind of a clearer picture in 2 Peter of what the author of Hebrews is hinting in verse 27. He says, yet this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Now, no, don't get confused. The author of Hebrews didn't say, okay, the stuff that's physical and made is bad, the stuff that's spiritual is forever. No, that's, that's a heresy called dualism. We don't believe that. What he's saying, listen, what he's saying is the things that are corrupted will be removed. The things that are incorruptible will not be. The old creation will be removed. The new creation lasts forever. And guess who is the firstborn of the new creation? Jesus. Guess what we are called? New creations in Christ Jesus. See, see what, what, what Haggai was picturing what, and what, what the author of Hebrews was picturing is that the Lord is going to bring this judgment. He's going to shake up the things that are corrupted. He's going to expose them. He's going to loosen their grip. He's going to make sure that they don't control us anymore. And he's going to bring heaven to bear on earth. This is great news. So when we talk about, listen, an acceptable worship to God is, is a receiving of God's word. It's in submission to God's word. It means, God, we believe your promises. 
We want the new heaven, the new earth. We're not going to manufacture it. We're not going to believe any yokel who comes along and says, hey, I'm here to bring up the new heaven, new earth. That's what's called an antichrist. Don't believe him. No, what we're going to do is we're going to look to you, Lord. We're going to take you at your word, and we're longing for that place where righteousness dwells. The world we all want is the world that only Jesus can bring. So, acceptable worship is in recognition of God's holiness. It's as recipients of God's grace. It's in submission to God's word. And lastly, it's with gratitude for God's rule. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know why the kingdom can't be shaken? Because the king is unshakable. The king is unshakable. We're not. We get shook up pretty easy. Let's be honest. I, I'm writing my first paper for my master's degree, and I'm, I'm, I've, I've, I was saying to Josh Musson the other day, I've never felt so inept in, in the last 15 years of my ministry life. I just, I'm like, I do not know what I'm doing. It's really, really hard. And I've been shaken quite a few times the last several weeks. Like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. But God's not shaking. God's faithful. God remains the same. God's still building his kingdom. And I don't know what part, of, what part God's shaken up, but he's doing some shaking there. And the good news is, all that will I have for eternity will not be lost. No matter what needs to be shook and loose, things that maybe I didn't know I was holding on to through this process, nothing that's important, that's eternal, is lost. It can't be removed. It can't be shaken. Can you give God thanks for that? He says, listen, and thus, verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Do you notice how many times he said, now this is the third time in this text, these scriptures, where he said, let us. And and this is the thing that we have to recognize, okay? Listen, we need to recognize that, that this idea of giving thanks is giving thanks in a lifestyle of reverence, and that lifestyle has always been meant to be lived out corporately. The most important expression of your faith in Jesus is not your daily quiet time. Though it's a great thing to have a daily quiet time. I highly recommend being disciplined and having a great daily quiet time. But that is not the most important expression. The most important expression is your corporate relationships with his people. Do you realize that? This is why it drives me absolutely nuts. That statistically, what we're seeing in the Western church is post-COVID, the, the, the average rate of attendance has gone down by like 25%. Not just that people have dropped out of church, that people who are still totally followers of Jesus have put it in their heads, I really don't have to be at church that often. It's not really that important. I was still following Jesus when we were locked down. We could, it's not, not a big a deal. It is the most important thing. Because you can't actually worship God acceptably. You can't give thanks unless you're doing it Corporately, that's the way God intends it first and foremost. Yeah, yeah, you can give thanks to God in your quiet time. Yeah, you can worship in your quiet time. You should. It's a good thing to do. But ultimately what God wants is for us to do this together. I'm not just talking about coming to church on Sunday morning. I'm talking about practicing gratitude every time you gather with God's people. Listen. 
The word that is, is translated worship here is a word where we get the English word liturgy. And it's kind of like the, the mode of service, the mode of religious service. That's the idea. So worship here, it's not less than singing praises to God because if you read verse 13, or chapter 13, sorry, one of the things in chapter 13 is describing what worship looks like. One of the things is, uh, is, is sacrifices of praise, to sing praises. So it, it, it's included in that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. The idea of worship here, listen, is not a, a, a singing sacrificial, a sacrifice of praise. It's a life of sacrifice. Listen to this. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Same word. It's not just an offering of song or even just an offering of service. It's like, here's my life, Lord. It's the, I think the NIV translate this. It's your reasonable act of worship. It's like, this is the most logical thing to do is God's given us his great mercies. He's promised us. He forgives us. He accepts us in Jesus. And he says, listen, now your response is, here's my life, Lord. You've bought it at a price anyway. Here's my life. And the let us shows that this does prioritize corporate worship. If you go down in Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12 verse 10 says this, same context, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You want to have some healthy competition? Prefer other people more than yourself. Let that be what you're trying to do. And lastly, we don't just give thanks for, to the unshakable God or with a lifestyle of reverence, but we also give thanks for his jealous love. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. And the author is quoting Deuteronomy chapter four where it says, take care. Moses says, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image, a form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden you, for your God, your, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, most of us aren't going to carve something with our hands and worship it. We do carve things in our mind yeah. and worship it. We don't approach God because we think he's too harsh. We don't trust God because we think he's uncaring. We don't. We're not honest with God because we think somehow we can hide behind religious acts. And this is idolatry of mind. It's not acceptable worship. I want you to know something. If you're in that place this morning, the mountain's still open. You can still go to God. Christ's death is still sufficient. His life is is still sufficient. His grace is still sufficient. 